be in Matthew 15 this morning. And uh, as you turn there, let me uh, set the context for this passage. Newsweek editor John Meacham, uh, also the author of the book American Gospel, has argued that the United States has never been a Christian nation, nor not a Christian nation. The point being that various forms of Judeo-Christian belief have always been prominent in our public consciousness as Americans, but at the same time, in many chapters of our national history, that which has been um, kind of nationally claimed as Christianity has really been little more than respectable morality, a convenient veneer. In the mid-1900s, there was a, a wave of religious fervor sweeping across the nation that historians call the mid-century resurgence. Billy Graham, the Jesus people, uh, there were scores of um, campus ministries and parachurch ministries started in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Some of you were adults at the time and remember this well. Others of you, your parents hadn't even been born yet. But at that time, um, as religious fervor was sweeping across the nation, the same time, simultaneously, the civil rights movement was going on, and there was an intense resistance to acknowledging the basic humanity of our African-American brothers and sisters. This resistance wasn't limited to those outside the church. In fact, by some accounts, resistance was most intense where religion was most ardent. Well, this sad and significant bit of our history uh, calls for further reflection on the sincerity or insincerity of typical American religion. But, of course, religion as a veneer is not unique to our national history. It's pervasive in the human experience. We tend to pretend at religion. This um, passage before us today, Matthew 15, presents two models of religion. The one espoused by the Pharisees and scribes on the one hand, and then this model of religion that supersedes theirs, that of Jesus. The, the Pharisees have a religion based on law uh, and void of love. It's nothing more than this veneer of pretended morality. But Jesus presents a religion based on love that fulfills the law a religion that comes from the heart and proceeds forward in sincerity. And of course, behind these two models of religion, more fundamentally, there's a competing vision of who God is and what his love for us is like. So look for these two perspectives on religion as I read Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles uh, father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So first in this passage, we see the religion of the Pharisees. Uh, the religion of the Pharisees, a, a religion based on law and void of love. So the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus from Jerusalem. It would have been a bit of a haul uh, for them to come to Jesus who is on the, in, in Gennesaret, on the, the north rim of the Sea of Galilee at this point. A- and they make this long journey basically to spy on him. And they end up asking this detailed question about religion there in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands when they eat? Now, this question really serves as a a window into their whole view of the world and their perception of God. Here's what I mean. Think about what's been going on in Matthew leading up to this point. Just in chapter 14 that we've looked at over the past couple weeks, Jesus Uh, has these crowds of people following him, and he has compassion on them. He sees their need, and he's healing people and instructing them about the gospel of the kingdom. And when he sees their, their need for food, again, he has compassion on them, and he creates food for all of them until they're satisfied. And then he, uh, the disciples are caught in the midst of this storm and, and he comes to them in the midst of their distress and he says, be encouraged, I am with you. And then at the end of chapter 14, as they reach the other side of the sea, hoping for some, some respite perhaps, the, the crowds follow him again. Just droves of people uh, coming after them, wanting, needing, uh, pressing in on him. And Jesus is consistently compassionate to them. Verse 36 there at the end of chapter 14 says, As many as touched the fringe of his garment were made well. Now the Pharisees come and say, what about hand washing? You see how their concerns are categorically different? Jesus is rescuing people from storms and sparing them from starvation, and delivering from lifelong, paralyzing, and humiliating diseases. And the Pharisees want to know why the disciples don't wash their hands first. You see the pitiful irony here? There's no celebration of God's goodness. It's just a religion of furrowed brows and pointing fingers. We can taste the flavor of their religion a little bit further by 
looking at these three points of religious law that are mentioned in verses 1 through 20. And, and these points of religious law that are mentioned really become a window into these competing models of religion between the Pharisees and Jesus, the religions they hold to. So you have these three points of law mentioned. First, in, in verse 2, there, the tradition of the elders, um, hand-washing. And then second, the, the commandment of God that Jesus brings up in verses 3 through 6, the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. And then Jesus turns to the crowds in verses 10 through 12 and brings up uh, foods that defile, which would have kind of been an overlapping of both God's law as well as the, the Pharisees' application of that law. So what do the Pharisees think about each of these three points? Because this is really a window into their religion, right? Well, the hand-washing there in verse 2, you can tell they're, they're just kind of bringing this up as an accusation. It's not a sincere question. It's an accusation. They overlook that all, all that God has been doing through Jesus in his ministry and choose instead just to hurl accusations over minutia. Now, there's a dynamic going on here that we, we cannot miss. They are like policemen regarding the appearance of religion, but really only the appearance of it. And we know it's only the appearance that they're concerned with because of this second point of law. And Jesus brings this one up in verses 3 through 6, and it's the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. Uh, an attitude of the heart, right, that should proceed uh, from the heart of a son or daughter toward their parents. Now, in a predominantly agricultural society, uh, one necessary way of honoring father and mother would have been uh, providing for them in their old age when they could no longer care for themselves. Uh, so the retirement plan in those days was basically having children, right? And then in your old age, you would, you would gain your needs, your, your means of living from your children. But the religious leaders had developed this tradition um, where the children, if, if the parents come to them and express some need, uh, the children could basically say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I've dedicated this to God. They could declare their possessions as a gift to God and thus unavailable for their parents' provision. In, in other words, the, the Pharisees had, through this tradition, uh, a really a deceptive and greedy tradition, pried open a loophole around God's law so that the child could declare it given to God but then really go on and use it for his own purposes anyways. It wasn't declared uh, for God at all. And for this, for this point of tradition that undermines God's law, Jesus excoriates the Pharisees and scribes for their hypocrisy, being concerned with appearances of adherence to religion only. Um, so you have hand-washing and then the fifth commandment. And then in verses 10 and 11, Jesus brings up foods that defile. He's, he's turned to the crowds at this point, and he says to them, it's not what goes into your mouth, that can defile you. Now, we'll come back to Jesus' teaching on that point in a moment, but for now, I'm interested in, in the Pharisees' response to that. So in verse 12, the disciples come to Jesus, and I, I chuckle to myself about every time I've read this line this week. Um, they come to Jesus and say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard what you said? Now, of course Jesus knows that the Pharisees were offended when, he, when they heard what he said, because the, the Pharisees were obsessive about uh, avoiding forbidden foods or anything that was eaten with unwashed hands. And not only concerned about this for themselves, but also enforcing these guideline, guidelines on others. So these restrictions that had originated in God's law 
Now, following God's law is a good thing, right? Uh, but these restrictions that had originated there, they had, they had added to and kind of shaped and manipulated those laws to create a, a religious society, a, a hierarchy of righteousness that puts them on top and everybody else beneath them. When I say they manipulated God's law, I mean that they uh, were based on, they, they were concerned with appearances only. They were enforcing the appearance of these things, so focusing on secondary concerns in the law, and at the same time, ignoring the primary concern of the law, which is the heart, the orientation of the heart toward God. So the issue here is not that they loved the law too much or were too concerned with the law, but rather that they distorted the law. They missed the first principle of it. So in each of these areas, hand-washing, honoring parents, and abstaining from certain foods, the Pharisees failed to grasp the first principle of the law. Love God wholeheartedly and love your neighbor as yourself. And they failed also to grasp that that principle is rooted in the very character of God. God is love. So in Exodus 34, he had revealed himself to Israel through Moses saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And whoever is born of God will reflect this kind of family trait. If God's family is a family of love, then those who are born of him will be lovers, both of him and of others. Even though we're adopted into this family, we come to look like the Father. We're not only adopted, but also transformed into likeness to him. So if we claim to be part of God's family as the Pharisees did, then why do we, like the Pharisees, gravitate toward legalism? Why do we gravitate toward legalism? Well, the human heart is infected with this anti-God allergy. It just courses through our whole system. We gravitate toward legalism because legalism doesn't require faith. It requires no humility about ourselves before God. Legalism needs no God. All it needs is self-righteous effort. And then this kind of self-righteousness uh, manifests itself in pride as we affirm ourselves and our own sense of righteousness while frequently critiquing others and patrolling as religious police as we see the Pharisees doing here. One author pointed out about this kind of religion. Persistent negativism of this sort is spiritually perilous. The person who makes it his life's ambition to discover all the things that are wrong with others is exposing himself to spiritual destruction. Thankfulness to God, both for good things and for his sovereign protection and purpose, even in bad things, will be the first virtue to go. It will be quickly followed by humility, as the critic, deeply knowledgeable about faults and fallacies, especially those of others, comes to feel superior to those whom he criticizes. Spiritual one-upmanship is not a Christian virtue. Sustained negativism is highly calorific nourishment for pride. Now, discernment is a good thing. But we need to recognize that self-righteousness often wears the mask of discernment. We call it discernment, but it's really self-righteousness. So that our criticisms are often just self-exaltation. But if, on the other hand, we recognize that sin dwells inside of us, that we are each really damaged to the core, 
then the dynamic that oozes out of us should be grace, grace toward others, not criticism. So Christians who are sensitive to the depth of sin inside of us should be easy people to live with because we are not prone to be judgmental of others when we recognize the sin in us. This doesn't mean that we never address deficiencies or sins that we see in others, but if we do, we do it in a spirit of helpfulness and humility, wanting their good, wanting their improvement, not out of a spirit of criticism. And when you feel morally superior to another person, you're not in a good position to critique them. So consider your own heart carefully. For in these condemnations of the scribes and Pharisees, you may find that Jesus is actually addressing you. He addresses them with these words from Isaiah. His people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. It's empty worship that they're offering. And he says they are blind guides, like blind leading the blind. This may be us, and it's often the self-assured who are the most confident about this, and, and often the most blind about their condition. Well, for me, here's one of the ways this, this kind of religion manifests itself. In our home, uh, when there's conflict between my wife Stacy and I, uh, you know, I'm self-disciplined. I often want to be like Daniel in the Old Testament, you know, just unaccusable, where you could kind of follow me around with a camera all day long, and, you know, there's no transgression, right? Um, there's no colorful language. There's no raised voice or harsh tones. But you know what's also missing? There's an absence of love. There's an absence of genuine, God-given compassion uh, for my wife because we're both sinners stricken with need. I see a lot of you smiling like you might know what I'm talking about. That's why he condemns the Pharisees with this quote from Isaiah, because they're conforming, right? They're avoiding transgression, and yet their hearts are far from him. God doesn't want conformity. God wants our hearts. He says to the Pharisees, you can honor me with your lips all day long, but your hearts are far from me. You see, there's often a certain fraudulence to our virtue. We look good on the outside, but there's something dark and secret inwardly. And that's why we as a church and moms and dads as you parent and friends as you interact with each other, we have to remember to prioritize the heart over appearances and actions. We don't just want right doctrines and right actions. We want right affections for God, hearts of love toward him and toward our neighbor. We can't evaluate ourselves by absence of transgression, but rather by the presence of affection, love for God and love for others. This is true, especially in our domestic relationships, in the home, where love can be most challenging. Well, here's another Pharisee move. A couple weeks ago, I was talking with a college, recent college grad who brought up this question. Is it okay for me to sleep with my girlfriend as long as we're both fully clothed and don't have sex. Well, fair enough. I mean, the Bible doesn't address this specific question, right? But the Christian isn't driven by external circumstances. The Christian should be driven by the condition of the heart. In other words, when, when considering the various situations of life, we can't descend into 
wrangling and casuistry over the subtleties and fine points of, of what a certain circumstance may allow for. Life is too complex and variegated to, to codify what we should do in every circumstance. Assessing life that way tends to focus on what a person does, but overlook why a person does it. What's the motivation? How would this act honor a brother or sister in Christ, for instance? So the initial question that my friend asked is kind of like the question about hand-washing. It's in the wrong category. We want to discern not what is allowable, but what is pleasing to God. Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. See, what, what the Pharisees failed to understand is that sin runs far deeper than the things we do. Sin is our propensity as humans to ruin things. It's the impulse that we all have to, uh, to distort every good gift of God by denying Him as the giver of it. Now, if, if you're visiting this morning, may, maybe you're uh, not too familiar with the Bible, uh, may, maybe you've thought of sin as something that's illegal. Sin is something that's evil, something like terrorism or, or racism or sexual assault. You know, sin is the stuff that harms society, right? But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus asks questions like, have you ever lusted in your heart? Have you ever coveted, you know, despised someone else's happiness with what they have because you wish that you had it, their, their wealth, their, their spouse who looks so much better than yours, or their job. The sin is, first of all, that resident internal impulse inside of us to ignore God and despise others. And on that point, we are all equal. The convict in prison this morning, the all-too-sincere terrorist, the secularist who feels enlightened, the fundamentalist churchgoer, the good old boy racist, and everyone in the room this morning. We all have the same dark corners and crevices in our hearts. In Jesus' eyes, we all need to be rescued. Rescued from our lovelessness, rescued from our cold hearts toward God, rescued from hearts that are self-righteous toward other people. And not only rescued from ourselves, but also rescued from God's just punishment against all of these internal atrocities that we have inside of us. Well, how does this rescue happen? How does salvation from ourselves and from God's just punishment against us happen? Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation everyone who believes. For through this good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous ones are those who live by faith. So the reason that we don't need to be concerned with obsessive adherence to the letter of the law is because the law has been fulfilled. The righteousness of God has been fulfilled. Paul elsewhere says to the Galatians, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to purchase freedom for us who were slaves under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. 
He goes on in the next chapter to say, so brothers and sisters, we are not children of slavery, but children of, for, of freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So use your freedom not as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So freedom from adherence to the minutia of the law comes not through our efforts to get it all right, to be clean on the outside, but rather by recognizing that we need a righteousness that we cannot attain, God's righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus fulfilled in his life. He is our only hope for freedom by believing in him. And then by faith, we seek to follow him and seek to walk in love as he walked. Okay, so in the Pharisees, we see a model of religion to be avoided, right? A model of religion based on law, but void of love. But in this passage in Matthew 15, there's also a, a contrasting model of religion presented, and this is the religion of Jesus. Uh, religion based on love, fulfilling the law. Religion based on love, fulfilling the law. So we want to observe the way that Jesus responds to the Pharisees in this passage on these three points that are brought up. Hand washing, uh, the fifth commandment, and forbidden foods. And see if we can discern in Jesus' teaching a, a principle here about his understanding of the law and of God. So on this first matter of hand washing, Jesus neither condemns nor condones, right? He's simply unconcerned with their tradition. Jesus says in verse 20 to the disciples, to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anybody. So he doesn't condemn it. It doesn't defile anybody, but he doesn't say we should do this either. He doesn't condone it. He's indifferent. On the second matter, now this is not human tradition, but this is God's command, right? The fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. And here, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for undermining God's law with their, their greedy and deceptive tradition. So in the one case, honoring parents, Jesus rebukes them for not upholding the law. Uh, but in the other case, he rebukes them for being overly careful in their application of the law. And then in the, the third case, the foods that defile, Jesus says, what goes into your mouth doesn't defile a person. Now in Mark's gospel, in the same story, it says, by saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So this would have been a total upset to Jewish policies. This would have been a massive statement for Jesus to make. And this is really the key saying in this passage, really the core of what's going on here in Jesus' teaching, this third item there in verses 10 and 11. Look at it again. Jesus says to the crowds, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. This would have been a summary of the things that Jesus taught, and it's very similar to the kinds of things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Back in chapter 5, it was, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Well, now Jesus is saying, You have heard it was said, what goes into the mouth defiles a person. But I say to you, it's what comes out of the mouth, from the heart, that defiles a person. So Jesus' lesson, which the, the, the uh, disciples were evidently a bit slow to grasp, 
is that purity of heart matters above all else. Defilement is caused not by what's external, it's not caused by what we see or do, but rather by disposition and intent from the heart. This is what the Sermon on the Mount was all about, driving religion inward, turning us to think about our hearts toward God. So the single fundamental, prin- fundamental principle here is central to Jesus' teaching, and really because of that, central to Matthew's gospel, and, and prominent in the Sermon on the Mount, is that the law is no longer on stone, but on the heart. We're not defiled by the body, by external things, um, but rather by the heart. And, and also the goal of the law then is love. Love toward God and sincere love toward one another. So the aim of true religion, Jesus' religion, is a kind of righteousness that exceeds legal principles. That's why Jesus said back in Matthew 5, verse 20, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Not only an external righteousness, but an internal righteousness. So the first principle of the law and the underlying principle of Jesus' teaching here is that above all else, the orientation, the direction of the heart must be love. This is where Israel's law began in Deuteronomy 6. The Shema. Listen up, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. So as we consider this passage and its teaching about the posture of the heart, we need to reflect on this. What, what would it look like for you as an individual and for us as a community to embrace the first principle of love? To be a community not focused on externals and law following, but to embrace this first principle of love. What would that look like for you as an individual, for us as a community? Well, first of all, begin in your own heart. Begin in your own heart. In the religion of Jesus, we have to beware of hidden sins, invisible sins, sins of the heart. You know, Jesus says that the Pharisees were blind leading the blind. They were blind guides, and, and, the, and they were blind in that they didn't see the depth of their own disease. These things that lie inward and, in a sense, invisible. Animosities and secret fantasies and constant coveting. You know, These kinds of internal sins promote self-righteousness in us because then we tend to compare ourselves with others but only in external terms. And then we we minimize our faults and inflate our virtues and pretend that if we can't see it, it doesn't exist. But sin is an iceberg and its bulk lies deep within and beneath, beyond the pale of things seen. So, We should pray with David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And when God answers that prayer, and you see your hidden sins, let me encourage you to be honest with God about those things. Like 1 John 1 says, if we say we are not sinful, if we're dishonest about our sinful condition, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if, on the other hand, we confess our sins, 
tell God what he already knows about our hearts and our actions, then he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then, as a, as a practical matter, it's often useful to tell a brother or sister in Christ about these things that lie within as well. Not because the Bible commands us to disclo- disclose all the nitty-gritty of our heart to one another, but, but, but in an attempt to make visible what is invisible. Because sin that is, sin that is left in the dark is often unaddressed. But when we bring it into the light, speak about it openly, and acknowledge our sin before God and others, we're often in a very good position to then put that sin to death, which is the goal. So if we, tend, if we, if we want to embrace the teaching of Jesus, then, then we have to look, not first of all at our hands, at what we do, uh, but rather at our heart and where it stands before God. And while the focus should be on the heart, this doesn't deny the importance of obedience, just simple obedience. Love and obedience always go together. So although Jesus demands that love from the heart take priority over law following, notice that Jesus is not telling them here to neglect the law in favor of some kind of mushy sentimentality toward God, as if loving God and obeying God were mutually exclusive options where we had to choose between one or the other. That's not the case. Rather, he is telling them that as they obey God and give attention to the law, they should have reflected more carefully on whether they really loved God. What is their motive for obedience? But still, they ought to obey, right? As some of you in this congregation, when you, when you first began to follow Christ, um, you, you became Christians in the context of a church or a c- community of Christians that, that emphasize a list of taboo things, things that you were told to refrain from, like R-rated movies or drinking alcohol, you know, things that, like this. And, and, and at some point then, m- maybe you realize that, that true Christianity, true spirituality, is not made up of lists of taboos and abiding by them, but, but something else altogether. Francis Schaeffer in his book, True Spirituality, said, we do not come to true Christianity or to the true Christian life merely by keeping a list, but neither do we come to it merely by rejecting the list and then shrugging our shoulders and living a looser life. So what is the something else? What is the something else that true spirituality is composed of? when we set aside the list that that's not true Christianity, we see that it's superficial and but a crutch, we replace the list not with license to do whatever we wish, but rather with a new kind of law. It's the law of love. There are two passages in the New Testament that mention this law of love. Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Romans, Paul says the same thing in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt that you have to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the law, if you will, for the Christian. The law of love. And of course, true love for neighbor only flows out of sincere love toward God. So freedom from the law then does not mean freedom from obligation, freedom from a sense of ought. It's not the pathway to uh, a life of loose living. But good deeds are redefined. There's a new way of thinking through uh, the true Christian life. Good deeds are no longer obedience and adherence to law, but rather good deeds are defined by the motivation of love. Obedience is not unimportant, but sequentially speaking, love comes first and then issues forth in good works. We don't get rid of moral demands, but we hold them to be subservient to and shaped by the law of love. Now consider yourself for a moment. Which do you tend to give more attention to? The acceptability of your actions? What your way of life looks like to other people? Or the sincerity of your heart toward God? What God wants for us as individuals is hearts that love Him and love others. What this will look like for us as a church is that we will be a community of grace. What God wants for us as Christ's covenant is that we would be a community known for showing grace to one another. That we would not be busy assessing each other and seeing how one another measures up to unwritten standards and expectations. Not policing each other's faults and transgressions, but rather that we each with full awareness of the evil that sits in our own hearts and how it tends to blind and distort our perceptions so that we tend to think of ourselves as without fault and others as full of it. Recognizing that self-righteous tendency, we just repent and exercise charity toward others in their failings. This is the kind of community that we should be. One author described it this way. The family of God is where people behave in a new way. We can think of this with a simple equation. Gospel plus safety plus time. The family of God is where people should find lots of gospel, lots of safety, and lots of time. There should be multiple exposures for the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. And the safety of a non-accusing sympathy so that we can admit our problems honestly to one another and enough time to rethink our lives at a deep level because people are complex and changing is not easy. Gospel plus safety plus time. Let's be a community of grace like this. The the goal is not to make the church a, a community that's safe for sin, but it should be a place that is safe for repentance and confession where we're prodding one another along to holy living but doing that with humility and kindness gentleness and patience toward one another we should be a community of grace and toward those outside the church we as a church should be known for compassion you know the church in our society is often accused of being concerned with strict do's and don'ts and overlooking mercy and compassion. Uh, Now, I think a lot of those criticisms are really just a simple rejection of the gospel. 
but we should listen for what might be true in those accusations. You know, we may have very pious lives, but what about the world of needs around us? How are we actively blessing the community that God has put us in, proving that our religion is not just one of rule-keeping, but even more, it's one of loving. You know, the, the kind of true religion that James talks about that sees the needs of orphans and widows, the, the hundreds of children in Wake County stuck in foster care and refugees and high school dropouts and single moms struggling to make ends meet. And, and we go and meet them in their need and show the love of God to them. You know, this should be another visible feature of how the gospel affects us as people and as a community of people. Good deeds as an expression of God's love, especially in caring for the vulnerable in society. This reflects God's love both to them and to the society at large. So we should consider points of need in our community, you know, the, the kinds of felt needs that people have. And those needs then become opportunities for us to make God visible to people. If they have thought of God as distant or indifferent to, toward their needs, we can prove otherwise. We can prove that God is there, that God cares about them in the way that we care for them. We need to be good as a church at looking for those on the margin and then identifying with them and helping to meet their needs. As Tim Keller said, if the church does not identify with the marginalized, it will itself be marginalized. If a crater were to take out Christ's covenant in the next few minutes with all of us sitting here, would our community feel the loss? In other words, our collective efforts as a church should be a tangible, kind of visible expression of grace to this community. It should be blessing those around us as a reflection of the love of God. How in the world can we begin to demonstrate love like this? It's a high calling. Let's be honest. Law following is easier. Setting up some guidelines to live by and living in the box is much easier. But to live by love, to challenge our motivations, to be introspective enough to admit that sin is pervasive in our hearts, that even at our best moments, our motivations are colored with all kinds of darkness. This is difficult. It demands humility. How can we do this? Well, Jesus replaces the old commands about avoiding certain foods with a new command about love. In John 13, for instance, he says, as I have loved you, so you also ought to lo love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This is the new command that Jesus gave. But to fulfill Jesus' religion of the heart, we need new hearts. We were born, every one of us without exception, we were born with hearts curled inward. Our concerns are dominated by me, what I need, my comfort, what I want. And, and the only way to fix that problem is to be born again with a new heart that is not predisposed towards selfishness, but rather oriented toward God and not toward self, toward loving Him and thus loving others. This kind of new heart, this kind of new birth, comes only from God. 
We need to be born into his family, adopted and made to look like our new father. This is exactly what Jesus has made possible. He lived the life that we should have lived and loved in all the ways that we have failed to love. And and then he was punished with the death that we earned by our lovelessness. So that now as we think of God, as, as we face God, we don't face his judgment against us for our lovelessness. Instead, we have an offer of acceptance into his family. We have this offer of adoption because Jesus has pleased God. He has walked in righteousness and love. And so Jesus can make us right with God and pleasing to him. Jesus can make us right with God, accepted into his family. And then the Holy Spirit makes us look like God, makes us look like part of the family. He creates this dynamic of love inside of us. Again, Paul says in Galatians, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and all that goes along with it. So how will we be a community of love? We will be a community of love as we persist in humble gratitude toward Jesus Christ for making us right with the Father through His righteousness. Nothing that we have in and of ourselves. Just like the verse in Titus that Charles read earlier. Not because of righteous works that we have done, but according to His righteousness, He saved us and washed us. So humble gratitude for Christ. And then secondly, a humble dependence on the Spirit. The one who renews our hearts daily to make us look more like the Father. That in ever-increasing degrees of glory, we come to look like Christ through this Spirit who changes us, who renews our hearts in love. So as we conclude this morning, let's bow our hearts before the Father and before Jesus Christ who has loved us and before the Holy Spirit who makes us look like Christ. And just in a a moment of silence, ask that he would renew our hearts today to make us look more like God in our loving and in our pursuit of him.